Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Welcome back, cyber colleagues, to part two with Jennifer Coughlin, managing partner of Mullen Coughlin. Um, we're going to dive right into it right now. We were talking in part one of the podcast, really around some of the threats that were going on in industries that were being targeted. But we've heard so much about the activity. Jen, I'd be curious about what's going on in the regulatory front. Yeah, so it's just as active as what you're seeing in the events. Um, so we are seeing laws being passed, laws being proposed. Uh, guidance is being issued that require more of organizations before they experience an incident and after they experience an incident. Um, but we're also seeing regulatory investigations pick up as well. Um, so what I did was I went back over 2021 and looked at how many movements did we see? So legislative movements. So how many new laws went into effect, amendments went into effect, um, any issuances of guidance and order or orders. And we had over 30 movements in 2021. And in 2022, there are currently over 20 movements, new laws going into effect. So what are these movements indicative of? I think they're indicative of a few things. Um, one, a recognition that reliance upon data and information systems is something that is consistent across all boards. Um, few and far between do you have these mom and pop shops that only accept cash and don't have, don't have computers. Um, a recognition of the impact of losing access to such data and information systems and what organizations that fall victim to losing such access, what they have to decide to do, what are their options at that point. I also think it's indicative of a recognition that businesses have so much data, so much data, and uh, there isn't always a clear understanding of what they're doing with that data. And it's also in recognition of a consumer, a person having a right to control how their data is used, how it's collected, why it's collected, is it shared, is it stored, when is it deleted, things like that. Um, but also it's indicative of the need for additional information to be shared by victim organizations. So just a few years ago, there were only a handful of state data privacy laws that required reporting to regulatory agencies. So when you don't have that required reporting, there's a, there's a breakdown in communication and flow of information and bodies that have the ability to maybe sway what's happening out there. Um, don't have access to the data that they need to understand how bad it is. So we've seen a lot of changes requiring more reporting, different types of reporting, very short deadlines for reporting. So I think all these movements are indicative of their recognition that victim organizations have a ton of data that would be really helpful in the fight against cybercrime, and they're not getting their hands on that. So under all of these movements, they're talking about sharing more information with them so that when these laws are crafted, when these government meetings are happening, they have additional information that can be really helpful to the conversation. That's great. So, so sticking with kind of the regulatory piece, um, I would imagine that the plaintiff's bar has been fairly active as of recent. Um, can you give us some, some insights into the plaintiff's bar? It has, it has. So regulatory investigations have increased. I don't see that going away. Uh, the plaintiff's bar has been super active. You know, you've got a lot of individuals that are being impacted by this event. You have some laws that 
that allow recovery of statutory damages, which is just simple math and can be really scary to organizations. Um, but standing is always going to be an issue. As of right now, it's always going to be an issue because just because my data was accessed or taken by a threat actor, what, what harm did I suffer? What, what damages did I suffer? Did they open a credit card in my name? Did they take out a mortgage in my name? If they did, I've suffered harm and damage, but is it connected to the event that where my data was taken from? So standing is, is an issue. Um, the Supreme Court over the summer addressed standing in the Ramirez v. TransUnion case where it said, you know, the potential for future harm, it's just insufficient. Now, it, that was looking under the FCRA, um, but still it was addressed. And we in December, Mullen Coughlin in December, um, we achieved dismissal reliance in reliance upon that decision of one of, I think, the first uh, dismissals of a data breach class action relying on that case. So uh, kudos to Claudia and Jim and Rick on, on our litigation team. Um, but the plaintiff's bar isn't going away. They recognize that there, there is real opportunity to recover monies. Um, class action certification is something that we're seeing not fully fleshed out yet either. But I think that's because a lot of times these cases will settle before the certification is decided. So we're not really ab abundantly clear on how the courts feel on class action certification for victims and data breaches because oftentimes these matters are being settled. Um, but the number of litigation matters we're seeing, it's increasing. We saw over 70 last, last year um, at our firm. And I think that number is just going to continue to go up. So, so, Jen, I mean, you've spoken about the thousands of matters you've seen over the past several years. My, 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 my interest is the insurance marketplace has evolved so much. How has cyber insurance played into the matters that you guys currently work on? Yeah. So I'll start by saying I know there are some people out there uh, that I'm not going to name by name that say cyber insurance is actually contributing to the increase in volume and severity of, of cyber matters. I absolutely do not agree with that. Um, I'll speak for John. I know he doesn't agree with it either, but we actually see it being the opposite. Cyber insurance is a great thing for an organization to have because instead of the organization having to figure it out on its own, the cyber insurer is already figured out. This is the call you make to set into motion, to ring the bell that is going to set into motion everything that needs to be done to efficiently and compliantly respond to these data privacy incidents. They've identified the resources that are needed to do so. They've vetted these resources that are needed to do so. And they've also negotiated rates so you're not paying $1,500 an hour for somebody to do it. So cyber insurance has been a key partner to all of the victim organizations that we've worked with. Um, many of our clients have cyber insurance. Some of them do not. Some of them can't get cyber insurance at this point because an additional thing that we see is actually positive is that cyber insurance underwriting has evolved over the past few years and it's becoming more rigorous. They're required to have more safeguards in place, um, more best practices implemented. Well, if organizations do that, they're better secured, they're better protected, and they're better prepared to respond to the incidents. So I actually think cyber insurance is helping organizations become more secure um, and be prepared. And I know you, know, you probably remember um, a few years ago, everybody was saying it's not if, it, it's not if, it's when, it's not if, it's when, and uh, it's, it's shifted because cyber insurance has shown everybody and our matters, it's showing everybody 
you know, it's, it really is a matter of when, but less organizations are hanging on to the hopes that it's an if situation for them and a when, and instead not a when situation for them. Um, but cyber insurance is helping the organizations. And we've seen organizations come to us that have cyber insurance, but didn't know who to call to ring the bell. So they called their cousin, Joe, who is a trust in the state's lawyer and their cousin, Bill, who runs a tech shop out of his basement. And we've seen these matters go sideways so quickly. They can go sideways so quickly when you get the wrong people involved. Um, we had one matter where it was a trust in the state's lawyer, a friend of the owner of the organization that experienced an incident. And the attorney knew enough to research the laws in that state. So he checked the box for where the victim organization was located by looking at the laws. However, the number of impacted individuals didn't meet the threshold for regu regulatory reporting in that state. Yet he, one, still notified the regulator in that state that that organization had an incident, but two, in the formal notification, spelled breach, B-R-E-E-C-H. So it helped in us calling the regulator and being like, hey, you clearly can see, like he didn't know what was doing, like we're stepping in. Um, but that organization was subject to a regulatory investigation that they may not have otherwise been subject to, but for working with the wrong counsel. We've seen matters where it's a paper incident and six people received notice and the bill from the law firm is $200,000 because they looked at every single state law to make sure they understood what applies to paper, what applies to computerized. We have that at our fingertips. We don't need to do that. So you're gonna save money when you work with people that know what they're doing. We've seen matters where they're calling cousin Bill with the forensic firm in the basement and two weeks into the matter, still don't they don't know the variant. It's ransomware, they don't know the variant the threat actor still in the system and they don't even know. So all of their all their information and all of their attempts to get the threat actor out of the system, the threat actor seeing them and blocking them. So uh, cyber insurance has uh, stepped up and said, look, these events can be really, really bad and catastrophic. We offer cover for some of the costs associated with responding to these events, but we also offer you these resources that will get you through them as quickly as possible. And even separate and apart from the incidents and the uh, defense cover that they may have for third party, we're seeing more and more carriers encourage organizations and providing them education and resources on what they can do to be better. So incident response plans, tabletops, things like that, um, really pushing an education initiative. So I think cyber insurance has been very beneficial to organizations as cyber crime has continued to spike over the past few years. No, Jenna, I would just echo your comments. What we've seen over the past 12 months from a cyber underwriting perspective has been a much more greater focus on controls. Um, you know, there's 12 key controls Marsh has identified that are really kind of critical for a business in order to procure cyber insurance. Um, do you have any suggestions in terms of controls that you've seen that have perhaps been more useful or best practices that have been more meaningful to helping reduce or mitigate a potential incident? Yeah, we're seeing, we're, we learn a lot from the, the events because we see it go wrong. So you look and see how it went wrong and you say, okay, that hole wasn't plugged, plug that hole, things like that. And we're seeing more organizations take steps to be better prepared and just better protected and, and more prepared to respond and, and defend, um, but conducting data mapping exercise. So you need to understand what data you have on your system. Where is it? Do you need it? Do you need it there? And do you have the appropriate access controls around that data? And we've seen organizations have to report on events with data that's 25 plus years old that had no business being on their system anymore. But the migration that happened from paper to electronic, it happens 
15, 20 years ago, it's still happening for some organizations. Migration is one thing, but then after the data is migrated over, you still need to be looking frequently to understand, do you still need to have that data on your system? Because it can really expose the risk that you have um, and the cost that you may have to incur when, when disclosing events like that. Um, security and penetration testing. So test your system out. You know, don't rely on your CTO and your CIO to say, we're good, don't worry about it. We have lots of clients bringing in third-party organizations to do security and penetration testing, to identify the vulnerabilities, to see if they can get into the system and then say, okay, this is what you need to do better. Um, EDR, endpoint detection and response. So it's software that when it's deployed on systems, it should, if deployed correctly, identify suspicious and nefarious activity and also quarantine it and stop it from spreading. So we've seen organizations have EDR where they might get hit, but the severity of the event is so limited because they had EDR and EDR caught it and EDR pulled it aside and said, you know, check this out. We're not letting it move um, along any further. Uh, patch management program, that's something that's huge. So vulnerabilities are being identified all the time. You've got zero day exploits being identified. You need to make sure you have a patch management program so that you're monitoring um, for patches issued for vulnerabilities, assessing whether or not those patches need to be applied to your system and making sure those patches are being applied to your system. Um, MFA, multi-factor authentication, we all talk about MFA. I think everybody knows what MFA is, but that's huge. And we have seen matters where organizations don't have MFA, even though we've been talking about it for years. So we see less and less of that. We are seeing organizations that have it implemented, but only on part of their system, not the entirety of their systems. Um, backups. So we've, we've got the three, two, one. So have three, uh, three backups in two different locations, one of which is offline. But take it a step further and test out restoring from the backups. Going back to what I said about ransomware in, in part one of this, um, this podcast and the reasons for payment. We had organizations that had backups, but the amount of time it would take to restore from the backup would be too much. And it was actually quicker to pay the ransom and get the cake. So go through the process when you're not in the middle of a crisis of testing from restoring from backups to understand how long does it take? What resources do you need? How much is it going to cost? So that you can make a more informed decision if you do experience a ransomware event of whether or not it would be quicker or cheaper to pay the ransom and get the key. Um, incident response plans and tabletop exercises, you know, they're huge. We, uh, we tell organizations all the time, you need to know the number to ring the bell and we're gonna help you. But you got to know and you got to train the people to ring the bell. And after the bell is rung, we don't want you doing anything like deleting data that we need access to for the forensic investigation to understand what happened. Um, so going through the process of developing a plan on who's going to be involved, who their backups are, um, but who's going to be involved in the incident response plan, what steps are to be taken by whom and when and at whose direction. And having that IRP offline but also testing the IRP via tabletop exercise, sometimes not even telling the incident response uh, team members that you're doing it so that they're caught off guard because they will be caught off guard when you experience a real uh, data privacy incident. Business continuity plan, vendor management program, going back to what we talked about with the third party events, some of these third party events were MSPs, managed service providers that our clients relied upon to provide services well, when the MSP, who has the keys to the kingdom of all of their clients, experiences a ransomware event, and then uh, the ransomware is spread to all of their clients, 
you know, what type of vendor management program was in place to make sure that you were assessing the security and safeguards that the vendor had in place and determining whether or not it's sufficient and meets your requirements that you have to ensure that your data is secure, your information systems are secure. Um, firewalls, uh, we talked about access controls, ensuring all software utilized is up to date. Don't use out of date software. Um, understanding your contractual, legal, and regulatory framework. So this is something that, I mean, it really benefits us when an organization comes to us and says, we've, we've signed 100 contracts and they're all the same and this is what's required. That has never happened. It has never happened. Um, and oftentimes the contracts are encrypted if it's a ransomware matter. So taking the time to understand what your contracts obligate you to do and say and when and to whom before you experience an incident but also understand what laws apply to you if you experience an incident so that you know you're reporting to certain organizations within 72 hours that the following happens. And that's gonna be really helpful when in the very beginning of the matter, when the incident response team is working, if they know that they have laws and timelines that are not on their side, they will work faster and work better and make sure that they're bringing in the right outside resources to help. But understanding all of that and understanding what's going to be involved when you experience an incident under the law um, is going to be really helpful to an organization before they experience an incident. Uh, training employees, you know, the human element is something that we will never be able to eradicate as a vulnerability, just never going to happen. So how do you address it? You want to minimize the access that people have because you don't want them to have access to more than what they need. We need to train them over and over and over again. Training during onboarding as a new employee is not enough. You need to keep training. You need to make sure that they understand. Just like we're saying the volume and severity and types of matters have been changing and evolving and increasing over the past few years, they need to know that too. So that when they get a weird email, they shouldn't just delete it or they should respond and then see that nothing happens and then just call it a day. They need to be aware. They are part of the defense. They are part of the safeguards that organizations have. Um, and cyber insurance, I mean, that's, but that's, that's for you to talk about, Mark. <laughs> Jen, Jen you, you must have been looking at the 12 controls that we were speaking about, because I mean, you just went over from a best practices exactly what we're talking and the carriers are really requesting now on a go forward basis. So it was really interesting to hear from a claims perspective or kind of the, uh, um, what you're seeing when the house is already on fire versus now you're seeing these carriers start to really push for these. And it makes sense because this is what you're now seeing from a, a, a post-breach perspective. Yeah, and I think there's more awareness at the C-suite level. I think there was a lot of opposition, hesitancy, or just lack of awareness of how important it was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, that, has, that has totally changed. So organizations that had very small budgets, those budgets have increased. They have the buy-in that they need, which is great. And we, we know some organizations can't get cyber insurance, but to the extent some of the risk can be transferred and you can become more secure in the process, that's great for the organization. And it's also helpful in the messaging when you experience an incident, because you will have a regulator say to you, how did this happen? And what did you do before this? Like, is your system just completely unlocked? So you want to be in a position to say like, look, we're people are being victimized left and right, but we have a $2 million budget and we had this in place and that in place. And, you know, you'd work with your attorney about whether or not you would want to disclose that information. But it's helpful if you have the ability to rely upon that messaging and your attorney says that you should. So Jen, if, if our listeners at this point have questions, they wanted to engage you, they had an incident, they want to do some tabletop exercise, how would they find you? Is it LinkedIn? Is it an email? How would they reach out to you to engage to do some type of a training? 
Yep. So if you go to www.mullen.law, there's a phone number up at the top. That is a hotline that will ring to all of our attorneys, all of our assistants, all involved in management. So there's over 200 people on that distribution list. So you can reach out and say, I need a tabletop. You can reach out and say, I had a ransomware event. You can reach out and say, I was just uh, served a regulatory investigation or a subpoena relating to an event that we had. And that's going to get everybody's attention at the firm. And we have a 24-7, 365 shop. So we have people on call all the time ready to respond. Um, so that's the best way. My email, J-C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N at Mullen.law. Um, my cell is always available, 631-987-7488. Um, but the best way is the number on our website, because that will ring to absolutely everybody. And we will start the intake process of, to address whatever need you may have. Excellent. Excellent. So Jen, you've shared a tremendous amount of information with us, but before I let you go, I'd be really curious in terms of what are, what are, do you have any future predictions looking at 2022, 2023 for cyber risk? If you had your crystal ball. If I had if I had my crystal ball, um, so I think uh, there are some people that say cyber insurance is going to go away. No, they're not. You know, look at all the numbers that we talked about earlier on in the first session. We've seen an increase in numbers, and you still see carriers stepping up and offering coverage. The coverage may look a little different than what it did a few years ago, but I don't think cyber insurance is going to go away. Um, I do think organizations will become more secure. You know, we last year, we held to over 200 organizations in compliance efforts. So they didn't have an event, didn't have a third party matter. They were coming to us because they needed compliance help. I think that number is only going to continue to go up and up and up. Um, the attackers are invested. I mean, think about the financial motivation they have. They're making billions of dollars doing this. Why on earth would they stop? However, I think they took it a little too far with the pipeline last year. And now you have uh, more attention um, from regulatory agencies and governmental bodies around, around the globe that they knew this was going on all along, but that was a different type of event. Um, so I think we are going to see increased uh, regulatory investigation, regulatory involvement, more laws, more guidances, more requirements. Um, more information being shared with law enforcement so that they can fight cybercrime. I don't think cybercrime is going to go away. Um, the plaintiff's bar is going to continue to be active. I mean, they've, they've realized they can make money. They're not backing down. The laws aren't doing anything to really stop them. Um, standing will continue to be an issue, though, that they will, they will have to address. Um, the, the laws that we're seeing, it's not only going to be on the incident response side. So when you have an event, what happens? It's going to be requiring more of organizations before they experience an incident. And organizations need to be aware of that. Um, but I think uh, uh, we have some job security for the next few years. <laughs> that is a prediction that even though I don't have my crystal ball in front of me, I think is pretty accurate. I think we do have job security. Um, but we have a responsibility to help organizations. And, you know, it's not just us that's helping organizations. You are stepping in and helping these organizations purchase insurance and just become better prepared. And this is, I started the, uh, the first session by talking about teamwork and how that's really how Mullen Coglin operates and how we are as successful as we are. Um, but outside Mullen Coglin, we are all key stakeholders in dealing with the cybercrime crisis. Um, MMA included, and we uh, we need to be at the ready to help organizations because cybercrime isn't going away. 
Well, Jen, uh, personally, I could thank you for everything that you've done for our client base, but I also thank you for everything that you're doing for our country, frankly, right? And really helping businesses, because I really do think that you are and your firm is providing a very meaningful service, both for helping uh, uh, insurance perhaps prevent or, or mitigate the incident, and then should the incident actually happen, actually helping them walk them through it, because it is crisis management. We have worked with many attorneys in your firm have had very positive experiences. So again, thank you. Thank, you, thank, thank you all. We do appreciate your support and everything that you're doing for our community. And uh, thank you for coming on the show and chatting cyber with Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Perfect.